0: Welcome to the Healthy Seas Podcast, a show about what we need to do to have just that, healthy seas and a healthy future. I'm your host, Crystal DiMicelli, and in each episode, we talk about the problems facing the seas and oceans and the solutions we have to fix them. Come on in, the water's fine. Today, I'm chatting with Kelsey Richardson, A marine consultant with the Food and Agriculture Organization, Pascal van Erp, of Healthy Seas and Ghost Diving. Hi, Kelsey and Pascal. Thank you for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: Today we'll be talking about the race for KGs, which is based on the idea that the value of an ocean cleanup is determined by the weight of what gets pulled out of the water. This is a flawed idea for various reasons, and we'll delve deeper into how to better determine the true impact of an organization's cleanup efforts. To begin, can you first explain what the different kinds of ghost gear are? Yeah, there can be
2: a large variety of different types of ghost gear. Typically, when we talk about ghost gear, it's in reference to fishing gear, which has been lost, that still has the ability to catch and kill either the target species or the non-target species, such as wildlife. And so essentially an easy way to think about ghost gear is any type of lost fishing gear that is still continuing to have impacts mostly to wildlife, and, but as well to the marine environment. And so this can be, frequently we see ghost gear in the forms of fishing nets, but pots and traps, so the types of gears that are used to catch lobster and crabs, are common types of ghost gear as well as lines. So that's everything from long lines, which can be used to catch tuna frequently, to monofilament recreational fishing lines. So the main categories that people typically talk about are nets, pots and traps, and lines.
0: Now Healthy Seas has encountered in their day-to-day work as an NGO that metrics like how many kilograms were removed are frequently being used to qualify the value of an ocean cleanup. Why is this a flawed practice?
1: Well, especially in ghost gear, it's not about the weight of the the fishing nets. It's about the type of the fishing net, mainly. This is because, for example, trawler nets are nets which, after they are getting lost, they are not really damaging or entangling underwater life anymore as such catching fish. But trawler nets are very heavy. So if you compare that with gill nets, the more dangerous ones, they are very lightweight. They are made of mono, usually made of monofilament filament material. They are very long, but because of the weight, if you then compare it to a trawler net and you come up with, well, okay, we, today we removed, let's say 100 kilos of fishing nets and it's a trawler net. It's not so much, but when it's a gill net, it's a lot. It can be a hundred of 150 meters of, of gill nets easily. So this is the reason why kilograms is just, yeah, well, it it all sounds nice, but doesn't say anything about the type of fishing net.
2: Just following on to what Pascal mentioned, there are so many different types of fishing gears in use, and the weights of fishing gears can vary substantially. So if we're talking about a lightweight monofilament line or a lightweight monofilament gill net, compared to, like Pascal was saying, a really heavy trawl net or, for example, a potter trap that's typically made of wood or metal. When a lot of gear is lost perhaps from a lighter weight material, but a little bit of gear lost from a heavier weight material, that doesn't actually, it,
0: it's comparing two different things. So weight aside, what types of ghost gear bring the most risk?
1: Yeah, but I, I can elaborate right. that more, you know, because gill nets are a very dangerous type of fishing gear. It's invisible. It's designed like that, so underwater you hardly see it. This is the case for underwater life, but also for divers, by the way, because that's why it's so dangerous for us. And it's designed to get entangled, like literally entangled. So that means that every single piece of underwater life species, it can be a jellyfish, it can be an octopus. And we've seen it all it's entangled in in gill nets. So gillnets, nets, when they are get lost, they are snagged everywhere and still catching because they are designed to entangle. And this is a very big difference with troll nets. Troller nets are thicker material, smaller mazes usually, not always, but usually and they cover when they are getting lost, cover usually an area like a reef or a shipwreck, but they just cover. So that doesn't mean that it's it's not designed to entangle. And this is why mainly gill nets are the most dangerous types of fishing gear. And next to that, I like to mention, but it's also because of the same materials that fishing lines, lures, and hooks are next to that. If you wants to add up.
2: Sure, just from a, from a scientific perspective, gill nets are technically categorized as gill nets and entangling nets. So yeah. like Pascal was saying, they're actually designed to entangle. And frequently in the case of trawl nets by comparison, types of trawl nets that are typically found as ghost gear, are either what are called legacy nets, so nets that have been lost in whole a very long time ago and have essentially sat on the seafloor wherever they were snagged upon, say a wreck. Or more frequently nowadays, a lot of the incidences of loss for trawl nets are from net repairs, so very small pieces of trawl nets or cutoffs. But if someone were to compare the weight of, say, a a series of collected small pieces of cutoff trawl net compared to the weight of a large entangling gill net in the water, the weights would be quite different, yet the impact would be significantly more for, for that entangling net. Just another gear type to mention that does have impact is also pots and traps, and primarily because those typically sit on the seafloor and can attract typically lobster or crabs, but after they're lost, Animals will continue to go into the potter trap, become entrapped, die, and then attract more animals, and it sort of results in this cycle of death. So, another one to highlight, in addition to the entangling nets and gill nets, as well as lines and hooks that Pascal mentioned, are pots and traps.
1: Now, what we what we what we see with hooks and with lines, mainly and long lines, is that they are happen to snag into other nets. So when we go down, for example, a shipwreck in the North Sea, we see legacy nets, or like Kelsey is mentioning. We also have that. But those nets are down there. They're covering an area, not really directly catching marine life. but still covering an area. And when a sports fisherman is coming, an angler, it's throwing out the line, is get with the hook entangled into the fishing net. So then they have to cut it. So it stays down there. But because it's monofilament, it's also getting snagged into, for example, lobsters and crabs heavily, because these animals used to have these lines in their arms and legs. And that's very, it's very sad to see. They got snagged and they run circles on that area because they cannot get away anymore.
0: Now we're talking about the dangers of these different nets and the risks that they pose. Global Ghost Gear Initiative created a best practice framework for the management of fishing gear and within that framework they have a rating system that they established for the risk analysis of this abandoned lost or discarded fishing gear. Can you tell me a little bit about this rating system? So the rating system it's fairly
2: basic because it's challenging to rate all fishing gears used all around the world for impact. But the basic idea behind the rating system is it looks at the likelihood of loss compared to the impact of that loss and then assigns, essentially, I think it's a five-point scale on sort of how risky these gear types are based on how likely they are to be lost and and the impact of once they are lost. So like Pascal was talking about before, gillnets are a great example. They're quite a, considered quite a risky gear type because there can be quite a high incidence of loss typically combined with high impact because they do entangle. There is another, from a scientific perspective, there is a published article in 2021 in Scientific Reports by Eric Gilman and colleagues, which is called Highest Risk abandoned, lost, and discarded fishing gear. So that's another good reference for risky fishing gears. And it takes a similar approach, which looks at likelihood of loss versus impact. Um, And then currently, there is a group of scientists that's sponsored by a series of United Nations agencies who is tasked to address emerging issues of concern around sea-based plastic pollution. And one of the issues that they're looking at right now is developing monitoring protocols for ghost gear, and part of that involves sort of better identification of risk assessment. So the Triple GI's best practice framework is a fantastic starting point, and it provides a really good overview for risky gears, but there are other publications and resources sort of currently under development.
0: We're talking a lot about risk in relation to wildlife, but there are other things that get impacted that we also need to consider. Can you expand on them? So I think thinking about
2: risk and thinking about impact assessment, the question is what what is the type of impact of concern? So is that impact to wildlife, for example? And that's what people frequently talk about in regards to ghost gear. Is that impact to target species? So for example, after the gear is lost, is it continuing to catch the same target species that results in economic losses to the to the fisher themselves? Is it economic losses to the fisher, so they've suddenly lost a gear, and so they're now out of that gear. There's frequently time required to go find and recover that gear, if that's possible. And then there are impacts associated with safety at sea and navigation, so imagine if floating net in the water can entangle a boat propeller is quite common. And then there are impacts to local communities, so imagine pieces of nets or ropes or lines or even hooks washed up in perhaps an area that's popular for beach and recreational tourism that, costs, that includes costs to clean up and can be a disincentive for sort of local activities. So I think the, the important question is identifying the impact of concern. Is it habitat? Is it wildlife? Is it community? And then ensuring that data collection as it's available from cleanups and from last gear reporting can kind of inform what the impact of concern
1: is. I'd like to add something to this one. What we also see is that we hear this from fishermen back is that it's fishing gears catching fishing gear. Fishermen are just throwing out their nets and they got entangled in already lost nets or hooks or lines or pots. Or whatever what is down there so this is also an important one to to mention because it's also more gear loss for them when there is already gear lost
2: yeah we work i've worked with some fishermen in brazil for instance who have talked about trawl fishing activities that they undertake and at times hauling up more lost fishing gear than than their catch frequently and the gear they're hauling up then has the potential to actually damage the gear that they're working with. (laughs) So it can be a bit of a vicious cycle in a world where we have at at times overfished fisheries and depleted resources, and then fishers are seeking to fish and are actually catching up other fishers' gear.
0: Oh, goodness. (laughs) Like you said, a vicious cycle. Back on the topic of kilograms, there's so much emphasis. There's almost a race for kilograms. And There's so much reporting on, oh, we brought up this much weight of of nets, but how can you differentiate between an organization that's really doing impactful work versus one that may, they're doing good work, but they're focusing on those big numbers that might actually not be as impactful.
1: About kilograms, I, I really like to mention that it's also a very weird way to explain what you just pull out of the sea. Because when I now pull out 500 kilograms of trolling net out of the sea, when I do it now, it's wet out of the sea, completely full of sand because of dead life, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 500 kilograms. I put it now to shore. I leave it overnight. I come back tomorrow. It was in the sun all day long. The sand and the dead life is already starting to fall off it's already three and a half because that's the the mass which was still in it, including water. Don't underestimate water. So yeah. there is a huge difference between wet nets, dry nets, and nets which are already on land for a couple of months or maybe a year because then everything rots out, yeah. dries up and falls on the ground. If you then pull the net, everything falls down and you only have the net in your hand. So. The kilograms is such a complicated thing to use in specifying recovered nets. You can you can more do this with the pots, the, the creel pots, for example. They are usually made out of plastic or metal. That is that is more a steady weight than than a net. A net is so complicated because of so many aspects.
0: And even I mean trawler net versus gill net. When you pull out a gill net, even if it's just out of the water, correct me if I'm wrong, a gill net's not going to absorb the water or the sand as as much as a trawler net made of rope, for example, right?
1: That's, that's correct. And that's why I don't mention gill nets. That's why I take the example of a trawler net, because a trawler yeah. net is usually made of a thicker material, which is absorbing water.
0: But the gill net is... Dangerous because it entangles things so much more easily than than the trawl net, so that's a really gr- good point to make. What qualitative and quantitative metrics do you recommend using instead since weight is, does not seem to be that effective
2: so I frequently recommend proportions or percentages of losses, so if I'm talking about for example last year if I'm talking about a loss line and 20% of that line is being lost, but perhaps only 1% of a very heavy trawl net or a heavy potter trap is being lost. The weight comparison might be more similar, but but the actual amounts of gear lost and impact could be very different. Um, I think the important thing is that since we're talking about gear recovery in this case, simply identifying that the type of gear that was recovered and then the various characteristics known about that Gear as well can be much more informative than just an overall weight-based estimate. And then there are certain types of gears that make more sense to quantify them by, for example, count. So how many hooks were recovered here or how many pots or traps were recovered here? And other gears might make more sense to sort of provide a bit more information about their sizes. So, was this uh, a meter by meter square piece of net, or was this, yeah, a hundred meter piece of line? So, just kind of thinking about the type of gear in question and then the various metrics related to that. But in my opinion, the most valuable piece of lost gear reporting for estimations is really proportions and percentages because that can be applied to any metric. And perhaps, like, when you know something about the gear itself, okay. If you have a hundred pots and you know fifteen percent of them are lost, then we've lost fifteen pots, for example, and it, it, that can be translated a lot more directly.
0: Pascal, when you guys do these recovery missions, do you always know where what you're retrieving has come from?
1: No, that's why we are using a little bit a different approach, as Kelsey is explaining. What we are doing is we are explaining the amount of pots, for example. So that's a very clear for everybody, easy to understand. In terms of swallow nets, we, well, first of all, we always specify what we recover. We never talk about fishing gear. So it's like types, swallow nets, trammel nets, gill nets, long lines, recreational lines, etc., etc. pots, traps, whatever. So. We always specify. That's the most. That's the first thing that's for me the most important part because then people get an idea what does fishing gear means. After that, indeed, of course, in lines, for example, we talk about meters, lengths. And I uh, also like to specify a little bit the hooks So because long lines have several sizes, uh, repetitive hooks. So this is also very important to, to explain. In terms of gill nets, we usually use length. Because a gillnet is designed to stand on the bottom over a long distance, so for us it's more makes more sense to talk there about length and about size, because yeah, the gillnets can be one meter high, two meters high, five meters high, ten meters high. That's okay, but the length says more because that is actually describing. How we call this? We call them the cu- the curtain of death because they are standing straight in the water and you don't see them. So you're just swimming it into it and you get entangled. So that is more for people to understand a little bit what the damage can be. And in trolling tra- tra- nets, it's where we struggle the most with because if we have only a trolling net, we have to say the kilograms, but then it's usually an approx because almost no team in the world who is recovering anything has at the boat a weight scale. So hardly anyone is waiting anything. So it's always approximately. Everybody is guessing. So in my last project from Lampedusa, for example, we we pulled out a huge Egyptian troller net and what we did, we analyzed the net, where is it made from, where is it coming from? That is very important. It's very interesting. It was so huge that the moment I was standing on on the vessel, I was thinking, well, you know, I can talk about kilos, but it's now here, a, a lump of net, it's laying here on the boat. So we decided to let to pull it out by a huge crane. The moment we lifted up the net, you saw that it was at least 25 meters high. And if you st- then stand in front of the net, then the public can think, wow. You know, that's big. If you put that thing, that whole net on a pile, then it's just like, yeah, it's 500, 700 kilos. That's it. So it, you have to show the impact. And yeah, square meters, I try sometimes, but it is very complicated because for that, we have to spread the net and then we have to measure if you want to be precise. And I always like to be precise because I don't really like approximately and guessing because then... If you, want, if you make a mistake, then people don't take you serious anymore, and uh, yeah, it's, we have to be careful there.
2: Just following on, Pascal made another really good point, which is in the case of recoveries, what's also very important is to communicate impact. So, so in addition to sure taking the weight of the gear, but and wherever possible, you know, identifying the type of gear recovered, the the size, the count, the number, etc., also recording impact so when that trawl net was hauled up for example how much marine life was entangled or, or attached to it some types of gears have a lot of adverse impacts to the to the seafloor especially in fragile environments like say seagrass beds or coral coral reefs there can be a lot of damaged corals that are brought up with different types of gear so just you know, Rather than a broad weight-based estimate that can be confusing as to whether this is a wet or dry weight of the gear and how much marine life is in there of the impact of the gear that was recovered too with either how much marine life was killed within it or the impact to the surrounding environment
1: as well. Yeah, this is very good because if you if you actually basically look what we are doing comparing to the ocean cleanup, for example, they are catching plastic. So catching plastic is very straightforward, you know, you catch plastic, you weight the amount of plastic, and that's what you pull out of the sea. What we are doing with removal of ghost gear is trying to manage impact. So it is not the weight, it's very simple. You know, when I pull out nets, it doesn't say anything. It's not a collection of containers of plastic. It's the impact because the net is spreading and every type of fishing gear has different impacts. What I, what, I, what I sometimes explain to, to, for example, kids is the difference between a plastic bottle and a fishing net. It's both plastic, but, for example, an octopus or a hermit crab will probably use the bottle as a shelter and will die in the fishing net. Then people really, then the, the, especially children, they start to realize, whoa, whoa, the, the danger is different, you know, it's both plastic, but...
2: I, yeah, and... The... And the way to address both of them are different too, for example, providing a, a, a bin on a beach or on a boat for that plastic water bottle versus ensuring that the fisher is not losing the net or if it's lost, recovered in the first place. The this, this sort of point of intervention is really different for these two products.
0: Pascal, as an NGO, is your ability to do great work affected or limited when you're asked by donors to focus on weight?
1: It's not limited, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to explain them that it's not relevant. And I did that already in the past several times, because indeed I see that the effect of organizations only talking about kilograms has an effect on the public, and also has an effect on donors. We sometimes get the question: okay, guys, if you remove, if we donate this amount of money to you, can you then make, pull out this amount of quantity of kilos from the ocean? And then the answer is: well, I cannot promise because it's depending on the project, it's depending on the location, on the country, on the type of fishing gear. So. Maybe, but I can 't promise, so we will see that after the project it 's not so simple as that we go down there and say we uh, we we donate ten thousand euros and we will get ten thousand kilograms no sorry, and it 's not affecting my my will to do something, but I just have to explain them that it 's just not so simple as that
0: and I hope we can spread that message further with this episode. Kelsey and Pascal, this has been a very informative discussion. It's important to clarify that value can't always be easily expressed in a simple number and that we have to be willing to ask the deeper questions in order to understand the true impact of an organization's actions. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for diving into the Healthy Seas podcast with me. I'm your host, Crystal Dimacelli, and I was just chatting with Kelsey Richardson and Pascal Van Erp. If you want to learn more about the work that Healthy Seas does, head on over to healthyseas.org or follow along on their adventures through social media. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and review it on your favorite podcasting app. I'll catch you next time. Healthy Seas is a nonprofit on a journey from waste to wear. Founded in 2013, the organization aims at reducing marine litter caused by lost fishing gear through cleanup, prevention, and education activities. The nets collected by Healthy Seas are subsequently reused and recycled, and used by its partners for the creation of new products.